Welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser. My guest today is Julie Blake, who works in publishing and licensing for the Erased Tapes record label in London. I don't talk about the music business a lot uh, on this podcast, or I haven't to date, but of course, uh, the music business is uh, what gets all this music we hear into our ears. And uh, with the kind of work that Julie does in publishing and licensing, placing songs in uh, movies, TV shows, commercials, and so on, uh, it's a pretty big part of uh, how music gets to us. She's an old friend, and uh, I thought the conversation we had was pretty interesting. I hope you enjoy it, too. So, uh, Julie Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so we know each other through your sister, Kara, who's a long-time friend of mine, collaborator, accomplished filmmaker, um, and uh, was, was part of my band, um, has done a bunch of, bunch of videos for me, along with a whole other bunch of projects. And um, the first time I remember hanging out with you is when I came and did a show in your hometown of Kitchener-Waterloo. Yes. Um, so, uh, but I, I remember like hearing about you when you were quite young, like you've been in the music business per se for quite a while because you had a, a band when you were like a teenager, right? Yes, that's true. I did. Um, I did play in sort of like a goth band when I was uh, in high school and also managed a record shop when I was in university. Okay. And what, what was that like? Um, well, yeah, which one? The, the band or the record shop? I mean, yeah. Well, let's both. talk about the band first. I, I mean, just, just briefly, like you're, you were, I, I remember you were quite young because you guys either won or were nominated for a YTV uh, Achievement Award, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. So this was very much like a high school band kind of thing. We were all black. I dyed my hair red, got a nose ring. Um, and we were referred to as like tool for your girlfriend. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that probably gives you a pretty good picture of the sound. I, I sort of I feel like we were kind of like evanescence before they were a thing. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's, wait, that, that's such an awful <laughs> coinage in a way. Like who, who, who called you that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think some university music journalist, you know, for like a university paper sort of thing. Right. Um, it's, it's so weird because it assumes that the target, um, you know, reader or whoever is consuming that is like a dude. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it was because we were a pretty heavy band with a female singer. So it was kind of lazy journalism, really, in terms of describing our, our sound. But yeah, it was, we were, I mean, we were teenagers and, you know, we were getting our angst out and we did win an award, which was pretty exciting. And that, that was crazy because we ended up performing on TV with like Robin, you know, the Swedish pop star. Yeah. Um, and also the award was given to us by 98 degrees which is like kind of like poor man's backstreet boys um yeah and yeah, you know like, jessica like simpson's levels down <laughs> from, from yeah backstreet boys yeah exactly so that you know that was sort of the the highlight of um high school life i guess was being in that band but i also was trying to kind of live it down for quite a while so i'm pretty glad that that was like pre-internet era um so it's pretty difficult to find the music or any information about the band, which is which is fine by me. <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> like a few years later, and you might have had a an internet footprint of some kind. Yeah, exactly. GeoCities site or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you also said you managed a CD store. Yeah, this is like the golden years of my career, really, because. I don't know if you remember a Canadian chain called CD Plus. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it was kind of like a poor man's HMV. But basically, um, yeah, CD Plus was kind of this like uh, sort of bargain chain where you could buy mainstream CDs. 
And when I was a teenager, I got hired as an assistant manager at one of the shops. It was CD plus number 163. And um, it was in a, like a strip mall in Kitchener. And I just loved working there so much. And I ended up getting promoted to be the manager of the shop and kind of like changed everything up. So it was a 3000 square foot shop. And we did have all the kind of like mainstream releases, but I ended up starting up like a used kind of buy, sell, trade thing. And people could bring in like CDs and box sets and like different stuff and basically sell them to us. So we ended up like building out this whole other section of music that just had nothing to do with whatever was coming out that year. Um, and like right. I, I hired this kind of like ragtag group of people to work there. And it just ended up being like the total like Empire Records hangout spot. So I was just going to say, yeah, I was <laughs> trying to replace the name of that famous movie yeah well basically like people would come and just hang out on their days off and just i created like this kind of back room with like couches and stuff and we would just sit back there and like smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and just wait for people to come in we had like a two-way glass so you could see when people actually entered the shop um and we would just come out you know from from kind of hanging out and listening to music and actually what was really great was because back then distributors used to come around with like a binder and promo copies of everything new that was coming out so we would always have advanced copies of like everything that was coming out so we would get to listen to stuff like sometimes three four months before it was actually coming out so yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun it's funny how i mean how could i say this like it seems like not that long ago but it really was forever ago in terms of the way that music is distributed and discovered and yeah definitely well that was like that was about 20 years ago now so i stopped working there in 2001 just right. a, just a little before like cd plus closed down pretty much all of their chains um but yeah that it's hard to believe that was actually 20 years ago but it was really old school in terms of like how music was coming out so like someone would come around to the shop and be like, here's a, here's like a sneak preview CD of, you know, the new Tool album, <laughs> just, you know, while we're on the topic of Tool. Um, or like, for example, while I was working there, Play by Moby came out, which was mm -hmm. like just a huge success across like every audience, you know, like moms yeah. and dads were buying it, like all the teenagers were buying it. Um, but, you know, we would get that record like a few months in advance, along with like T-shirts, posters, and there would like the campaign would be us kind of like basically plastering the windows and like all the walls of the shop with posters for that release, building up to the date that it was coming out. Right. That uh, it's it's a it's a bygone era. Although I mean, I suppose I don't know. I mean, you you're still involved in the music business. Do you find like how is the promotion uh, of music? change how is it different today do people still i mean i guess right now it's kind of impossible to say everything has been upended but um what, what do what do promo campaigns look like today yeah well i mean i work for array tapes records now but in their publishing division so um my like focus is more on soundtracks but in terms of like uh -huh. the, the marketing campaigns that the label runs you know like it has to be pretty creative now to try and kind of cut through a, a lot of racket. I think a lot of the marketing ends up getting done through like online media. So that can be like the artist's own channels, plus like mm -hmm. online, a lot of online reviews and articles are really important on like, obviously on key platforms like Pitchfork and stuff like that. Um, you know, just getting getting the right sort of um, coverage on like an online radio station as well can really help with like having, you know, a play on like the right radio show. Mm -hmm. um, and then for like bigger campaigns, there's still a traditional kind of like marketing campaign that can involve print ads and also billboards. Uh, there's quite a big billboard scene here in London. I don't know if there is in Montreal, but um, all the billboards here are for like corny furniture stores and okay like <laughs> yeah there's a lot of really cool billboards like really good music billboards in London um, especially around East London like um, around shortage and actually uh, Netflix has started doing like painted murals in London as well for new stuff that's coming out so there's a there's a real scene here for doing like big 
large scale billboards for new media. Right. All right. So we've jumped way ahead. So let's go back a little bit. So you, uh, you are, you, you grew up in, uh, in Kitchener. Yes. <laughs> for, for our listeners not familiar with uh, Canadian geography, it's like a town, like about an hour outside of Toronto, right? That's and, right, yeah. And uh, it's kind of a nondescript, like, so how could you put it? Like, it's it's somewhere between a suburb and, and of Toronto and a small town, I would say, a small city. Yeah. Um, a Kitchener itself is, is kind of working class, and yeah. it's also like adjacent to Waterloo, which is like the, the university town, right? Yeah, Waterloo's got a couple of good universities there, and it's turned into a bit of a tech hub as well. Um, right, right. Really kind of, I guess, led a bit by like Research in Motion being there. Um, right, and, of course, the Blackberry. <laughs> yeah, and there's a few things in Waterloo that have kind of like brought some interesting people into the city, which is like the two universities um, and... Also, um, there's uh, there was a theoretical physics institute that was that was put into Waterloo called the Perimeter Institute, and they okay. they basically invited like scientists, like leading scientists from all around the world to come in and I guess think about like large physics problems. Um, but I know that a lot of really interesting kind of thinkers have come and spent time in the city there. And um, I, when I was actually bartending, when I was in university, a lot of them used to come to this like kind of music venue slash bar that I worked at called the Jane Bond. Um, yeah, sure. I remember the Jane Bond. Yeah. And they were like, they would always just come down and like muse about sort of physics and drink absinthe. So that was, that was an interesting time. That is kind of cool. Um, and you said when we were corresponding about doing this episode that like you keep running into people from Kitchener and Waterloo in the in, in throughout your music career. Yeah, that's true. It's been it's been kind of strange. So like the first the first run in was actually in Montreal. So, you know, I, the first time I ever heard Funeral by Arcade Fire was actually at your house at a dinner party. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and it was like around that magic time. Uh, what year was that? Like 2005, 2006 or something? I think, I think Funeral came out in 2004. Okay. So around that time, um, you know, obviously the Montreal scene, the like Montreal indie scene was really blowing up. And um, we kind of heard like everyone working in music in Montreal heard that this journalist from Spin Magazine was coming to town to do a yeah, feature. Do you remember this? I remember yeah, that, yeah, he was coming to town to do a feature on the Montreal music scene. And so, you know, a lot of people that worked in music at that time were like, okay, well, we need to kind of get in with this guy and let him know about all the important artists that we're working with. And so I remember meeting like this, this prestigious journalist from New York City and kind of walking up Saint Laurent with him and chatting and discovering that the guy's actually from Kitchener, Ontario. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, that was that really funny. that was really strange to discover, and I thought like, how did we how did our paths not cross? Because we're you know same age, both working in music, both from Kitchener, and I found that really really strange. Um, yeah, so that, totally. that, <laughs> yeah, that was number one, and then the other one that was really weird was so fast forward to like present day. Um, so one of the one of the artists on Erase Tapes that I work with is Niels Fromm, who's amazing. And um, he was one of the main reasons why I wanted to start working for the label because I was a big fan. And um, we did like a little sort of listening session of one of his recent albums, All Melody, at Rick Rubin's studio, Shangri-La Studios in LA. And mm -hmm. it was kind of like an invite-only event, you know, VIPs. So <laughs> I invited this really kind of prominent music supervisor from LA who works in advertising and um his name's gabe mcdonough and so i had heard a lot about this guy's work he was like you know famous for placing like really amazing music and ads and um i i'm chatting to him at rick rubin's <laughs> turns out the guy's from kitchener ontario so he's not from la at all he's from kitchener ontario so that was another just one of those like just kind of mind-boggling moments where you're like how did we not meet before and and this is just so weird yeah, it is weird. And then was there a third uh, 
person you ran into? Those no, those were the two like main. Okay. Yeah. And you are the third person. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I and, guess I'm the third. Yeah, and also Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club now lives in Kitchener. Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah. it's the place it's, to be. Clearly, you know what were we all missing? <laughs> yeah. Well, I I remember it being being pretty cool in its own way, um, <clears throat> but of course I can understand why you would have wanted to uh, to move on, and so you moved to Montreal you were saying, and you ended up working for uh, Ninja Tune and later Third Side Music, the publishing place, when they were kind of getting off the ground, right? Yeah, so I, well, yeah, it was actually through you once again, uh, my, (laughs) someone who's introduced me to a lot of great music and music people. Um, So yeah, I was just, had just arrived in Montreal and I was kind of trying to figure out how to make a go of it there and i think yeah basically heard through you that um ninja teen had an office in montreal which i didn't know i was a huge fan and i was so excited because i thought they just had a uk office and i was like oh my god i need to start working for those guys and so yeah you had helped me sort of connect with jeff who was running ninja teen north america at the time and i was really insanely nervous about having an interview with him because it was one of my favorite labels ever since I had been managing the record shop and like that was definitely like my my favorite music at the time um so yeah I I was really nervous when I met Jeff and I basically like took this little box of matches that I like made a collage on and (laughs) I put a picture of a ninja on the front and I cut out letters spelling knock knock who's there. And then on the back, I just put Julie Blake <laughs> and my phone number. And I was like, you need to hire me. Like, I'm leaving this with you. I left the matches. Um, and I did end up working for Ninja Team for about a year um, when I was first in Montreal. But um, Jeff ended up saying to me, you know, that they were going to start this publishing division to kind of focus on licensing for soundtracks. And at that time, actually, he sort of counseled me and said, like, there's two different kind of routes you can go with your career with us. One is you could work in retail for the label, or you could try and like help start up this music licensing company. And I was like, "Mm, okay, like favorite record label of all time or mystery question mark, you know? Um, And it was actually a pretty tough decision, but I decided to sort of take the plunge and like start this sort of new project which was their publishing division, which then became Third Side Music. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I worked there for quite a while from like 2005 until 2011 and right. sort of like got things rolling, I guess, in terms of the um, the licensing division there and got to work on some really cool soundtracks. And it was, it was actually still, we still, you know, worked with the Ninja Team catalog. So I got to work on some really cool stuff like couple of video game scores with like Emma Tobin and um yeah there was a lot of really great projects I got to work on um just backing up a little bit um you said that you were excited about working for Ninja Tune because you loved that music from from an earlier age what was it about the music that that you liked so much yeah I guess when I was in university I sort of got into this I guess trip hop music and mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time commuting from my parents' place in Dune, which is like on the outskirts of Kitchener towards Cambridge. And I was like in the car for about 45, 50 minutes driving to University of Waterloo every day back and forth. And I spent a lot of time listening to cassettes and like CDs and stuff in the car. And I got really into artists like Portishead and Lamb and Massive Attack. And I just, I remember when I was working at CD Plus, I ended up getting like a couple of samplers, like some of the like Zen cuts samplers from Ninja Tune. And I was like, oh, this is, this is just the best music ever. And there was, um, uh, yeah, I remember getting a copy of Bricolage by Amon Tobin and it, I just absolutely loved the track Easy Muffin. Mm-hmm. And I sort of awkwardly told him on the first time I met him at work, like Easy Muffin is the greatest song ever. <laughs> um, but the, those were just the sounds of kind of my my I guess my like growing up you know where I spent so much time just being drawn to those kind of like chill chill out beats there was a really big electronic music scene in Kitchener and um I actually like sort of tried DJing for a while I had a lot of friends who were DJs and 
Um, we spent a lot of time going to like electronic shows and clubs and seeing artists like Richie Houghton and like Autechre. But you know, when you're not partying and you love electronic music, you kind of want something that's a little more chill. And for me, like that that trip hop music was just perfect for that. What, what do you think is like? I mean, I feel like there's there's a schism that's maybe you know eroding over time, but there's still a bit of a schism between like more traditional songwriting based music and more electronic based music. Like, do you remember the first time you heard the kind of electronic music or what, how it appealed to you? Well, I remember that some of the first electronic music that I was drawn to, it was really because of the bass. And mm -hmm. I really like the visceral experience of having bass rumbling. So, I like feeling music, which is something that maybe you, you, mm. you only, you know, if you hear loud rock music, it just, you feel it and it hurts your ears. <laughs> but yeah. if you, if you listen to really good clubby music or electronic music, you just, you feel it like in your gut. And it, I, I like that feeling a lot more, which is to just be like moved to dance. You actually got uh, tinnitus in your ear from, uh, from attending a show, right? Yeah, tinnitus. Uh, it's a horrible ear condition where you basically have a high-pitched ringing in your ear all the time. And I was probably tempting fate with that one. I went to see Machine Drum, one of my favorite artists, performing at SAT in Montreal. And the I don't know whether it was the concrete pillars and walls and or floors or what, but those bass frequencies went a little, a little too hard on all of the audience members. And basically a lot of people ended up having to step outside because they were feeling unwell because the bass frequencies were like rattling and rumbling. And I got home that night and my ears were ringing and I thought, oh man, I have never felt pain like this after a gig. It was so bassy and so heavy and so good, but a little too much. And I woke up the next morning and the ringing was still there. And I woke up, you know, 10, 10 years later and the ringing was still there. <laughs> so thanks very much, Machine Drum. Still, still a fan. Um, so I've always been really drawn to like bassy frequencies, frequencies and like quite dark music. What do you mean when you say dark music? Well, I mean, thinking about my music tastes before this conversation, I was like, what what kind of music am I drawn to? And it, it it's I, it tends to be sort of like pretty heavy, bassy, dark, like kind of, um, yeah, good question. So what do I mean when I say dark? I guess I mean music that's not happy. Okay. <laughs> so like there is a place for happy music for sure and for me when I'm happy the kinds of music that I like to listen to would be like you know like really up upbeat jazz or like psychedelic stuff that feels like really like sparkly and like sunshiny like something mm -hmm. like J Jimi Hendrix that's like really bright mm -hmm. whereas you know something like teardrop by massive attack it, it's a bit you know it's like moody yeah. And I like music that's pretty melodramatic and, you know, looking at some of my favorite soundtracks, a lot of them are quite melodramatic and it's sort of like it, a lot of it, a lot of electronic music can be quite boring, but I think for someone who actually has an ear for electronic music and understands like the difference between something that's just like a club track versus something that's trying to, you know, be more melodic or artistic, mm. like when, when you when you kind of listen to a lot of electronic music, I think it's, you start to notice that schism that you were talking about between stuff that's like more creative mm -hmm. and stuff that just has the beat. Right. Um, you, you, you talked about soundtracks and uh, like, do you, I, I find it interesting because you, you work with soundtracks, you said uh, today, um, did you listen to a lot of soundtracks growing up? Were you aware of soundtracks? Yeah, I was thinking about this. So, um, I mean, for me, there's one standout moment that where like, I think my love of soundtracks was born. And that was when I saw Cirque du Soleil when I was 12. Um, I got the soundtrack for Cirque du Soleil Nouvelle Experience okay. uh, when I was 12 years old. I, I bought it on cassette 
And it was after having seen the show. And I think I realized kind of the power of like watching um, visuals with music. And I had actually been taken to see quite a few musicals as a kid. You know, my parents were great about taking us to the theater and we saw tons of musicals. So that was kind of my entry point, I guess, for like soundtracks. Mm -hmm. And um, when I, I realized that tons of the soundtracks that I listened to or was exposed to as a small child, like age six to eight, were actually really terrifying. So stuff like Labyrinth or like The Neverending Story, um, also Fantasia, which I saw uh, when I was when I was like s sort of seven years old, I think. And okay. like that stuff is really scary. So I don't know. I've always actually kind of hated 80s, 80s sounds. And I'm wondering if maybe it's because of all of the terrifying 80s, like mid 80s soundtracks that I was exposed to as a kid. That's the really interesting. The yeah. synth sounds. Yeah, no. I, I, I saw recently that Neverending Story had popped up on some uh, one of the streaming platforms that I have. And I was like, oh, I'll watch it with my kid. And then I was like, sort of doing a little more research online. And it's like, is it really, you know, should I wait till he's a little older? But I never th thought about this or any other movie, how the soundtrack could affect uh, a childhood movie watching experience. But, but it's totally true. Yeah, well, Fantasia, I think, is a great example. I was kind of revisiting it recently, and I saw a blog called Fantasia Nightmare Fuel. Okay. And, you know, it's it's all, like, great classical pieces, so, like, Beethoven, Stravinsky, Gershwin, and that score is so intense, and it's coupled with such dark imagery. So, I mean, like, the Sorcerer's Apprentice <laughs> section of the film is just terrifying, where, like, Mickey is just, you know, trying so hard to get these like possessed brooms to stop, like stop cleaning up and the buckets of water are overflowing and the music is just out of control and so intense. And it's pretty terrifying. It's funny, you know, I, I'd have to watch it again, but I remember it being kind of a, like a light spot in the movie. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Compared to like the the death of the dinosaurs, I think that was a light a light spot. But um, yeah, overall, that film is terrifying, and I think the music is a pretty pretty important factor in that. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so so you were in Montreal for a number of years working for uh, for Ninja Tune and, and then Third Side, and then and now you're in London. You've been in London for quite a number of years. Yeah, yeah, I moved over here in 2014, so I've been here full time since then. And uh and you said you work for uh, Erased Tapes. You, I, yeah. I, I I seem to remember you saying at various times that like you were you were through with the music business, but it seems to keep drawing you back in. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the true story there is probably that it's it's kind of hard to remain in um in the UK as an immigrant if you don't have a skill. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think my my work history sort of, I guess, drew me back into working in music where I could kind of try and find jobs that were related to my skill set. So that's the boring answer is, right. is in terms of why I actually initially got back into it. But I was really selective about who I wanted to work with and actually my entire career like over the last sort of 10 15 years has been like this gradual funneling to sort of narrow down what i'm doing mm -hmm. and and which artists i'm working with so i didn't want to just work with just any label or just with anyone um in london so i i did really like i said i really was a fan of niels Brom and also peter broderick and um, Rival Consoles as well, who's on Race Tapes. So there were a few artists that I kind of knew before working with the label that I was a fan of. And there was like a mutual friend who had introduced me to the founder of the label. And they didn't really have anybody at that time overseeing their uh, publishing division. So mm -hmm. um, I was brought on as a consultant and like I'm still working in that capacity, just kind of, you know, helping with developing sort of the what the composers are doing. And I've had a chance to work on some really cool stuff, like uh, Rival Consoles did uh, some original music for like Black Mirror last year, which was really fun to work on. And so that's been really great and got to also help with project managing the 10th anniversary box set for the label, which was really fun. So we did like a, 
a bunch of different recording sessions in Berlin with all the different artists that have ever released on the label and also like some guest artists so that you know it's been it's been it's been a good way of getting getting kind of sucked back in yeah that's cool i mean personally like i'm happy to have uh someone like you working in, in uh in the music biz um because i feel like uh it needs uh it needs good people at one time uh you also made music do you still make your own music no not really i i've mostly made playlists <laughs> um so i mean i'm a total like spotify junkie and i'm on there all the time making playlists and listening to new music mm -hmm. um so i've kind of been working on a lot of different projects there which are like these kind of like audio vision boards or audio not really vision boards if they're audio uh yeah i guess yeah, but i see what you mean though do you mean for yourself or like for, for yeah a variety for of or? a variety of projects so um i've done lots of playlists for others and for myself um so i've been kind of exploring some concepts around music and food so for example um working on like a playlist that's totally inspired by grapefruit mimosas basically making soundtracks for meals and um just like the intersection of music and food is something i've been mm -hmm. playing with and actually way back um really cool producer a guy friend nobu adelman from toronto who went on to form choir 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 which is an amazing ensemble um he he's like a real entrepreneurial type and he actually produced this show Food Jammers along with a couple of other great friends from Toronto. And it was basically like three guys from Toronto just doing wild experiments with food. And, you know, one of my favorite episodes is like pie raft or pie on a raft, I think it's called. And basically they just like, they put an oven on a raft so that they can bake pies in the middle of a lake. And that's a great example of kind of what the what the show is all about, which is just sort of having fun with food. And they the creators of the show had great taste in music and they needed some help with kind of music coordination. So I worked on a couple of seasons of the show with them and was able to sort of put together like a really great indie rock soundtrack for the show that, you know, included stuff like Animal Collective, Boris, Lightning Bolt, and just stuff that you wouldn't typically associate with sort of music that you might hear in the background on a food show on the Food Network of Canada. And I really hope that this show actually sees a resurgence, especially now in this like kind of Netflix foodie, like MasterChef age. Secret dream of mine is definitely to music supervise MasterChef one day. Um, but back to Food Jammers, this show is amazing and it's actually been sort of like posted on YouTube. So um, definitely check it out. Um, I've also been sort of like writing a screenplay in my head for quite a few years now about a destination wedding in Brazil. So um, I've been like basically building the soundtrack for that film now for quite a while. And every time I'm out like listening to new stuff, if I sort of start to picture a scene from that film in my mind, then I'll start putting it on playlists. And I kind of like at the very beginning sort of phase of trying to write a musical. Oh, nice. Um, which I've been doing these kind of playlists for. So yeah, I spend a ton of time on Spotify just kind of getting creative that way. And I'm doing a little bit of DJing over here as well. Um, coming back to Spotify a little bit, I, I, was, uh, I was kind of like, intrigued or relieved in a way i'm always like i feel like spotify gets a really bad rap and of course i understand why because from an artist point of view it's quite like you know i i get the royalty checks that say like you know your song was played 1500 times in the uk like here's a dollar 50 and like i definitely feel that frustration and sort of like economic uh, unfairness of it However, like, I think that at the same time, you can't really deny from a listener point of view that like, it's kind of amazing uh, as a platform. And uh, I feel like that, you know, when artists are railing against Spotify, like sometimes they'll admit that they actually use and enjoy it. But sometimes <laughs> they don't. Yeah. But I mean, like it's, you know, of course it doesn't have everything. And, and uh, 
and so on. But uh, but it's pretty handy, pretty user friendly, and pretty great for finding stuff and just the the interface on it. It's pretty great and. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of people do hate on Spotify and probably I would say music is a bit undervalued on the platform in terms of how much ends up in artist pocket. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of digital content is undervalued. Even if you look at other sort of platforms like Netflix, like look at how much content you get on there for your subscription of whatever it is, eight or nine ninety nine a month. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of unfortunately the plight of digital media. And I don't think Spotify is, should be like, you know, vilified for this because actually they have created something that is definitely one of the best like listener platforms that's ever been out there. And for me, I mean, I, I actually invited Matt Ogle who created Discover Weekly to come talk at a music event in London. He's from mm-hmm. Canada actually. Um, not from Kitchener, though. Right? <laughs> I wish. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But um, yeah, so he basically this the whole Discover Weekly thing. I mean, you know, big data is all about sort of gathering, you know, tons of little tons of little transactions and then processing that info. But with Discover Weekly, what they were doing was they were actually the the, the information they were capturing was what song did you put on this this playlist? And then if you put another artist from that same playlist on one of your playlists, it like cross-referenced that and said, well, that guy liked Caribou and she liked Caribou, so they might like the artists that are on those other playlists. So they basically cross-reference us and suggest something and they start throwing things out. And it was kind of sophisticated and cool the way that was happening. And, you know, going back 20 years to like, when the guy came to my CD store with a binder and said, here's the new releases, what are you interested in? That was really limited. It was nice to be told by a human being what music was coming up and what I might like. But actually Spotify helps me discover way more artists. So if I, I love the song radio. So if, if I like a song, I go into the song radio and then I dive down and I discover like tons of other tracks that are in that same sort of vein that I might like. And I would say, you know, there's like a 50-50 chance I'm going to like a lot of the stuff on there, but it's still, it's a great way of finding stuff. And I think probably what I miss the most from listening to music mainly on Spotify is like listening to an album from start to finish. So I've started doing that quite a bit recently, which is to just listen off Spotify, like at home to an album from start to finish and just not interrupt the process at all. Yeah, it's true that that's kind of like a lost, uh, a lost art or a lost pastime. It's hard to find the time. It's hard to find the focus. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I find that the, I mean, the Discover Weekly is a pretty great thing. Um, I, um, you know, I'm always curious, like, how well do they really know me? How honest, you know. I guess like you can't really hide your own tastes. You can't you can't have like a dark spot. <laughs> well, actually, yes, you can. You you can do secret sessions. You know, a lot of people oh, working in A and R do need to do that. Yeah, you need to. You definitely need to protect your listening. Um, you can definitely it's like the equivalent of the of the uh, what do you call, what is it called on your inter, uh, the incognito window? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. You, you need to use that a lot of times on Spotify, especially if you share an account. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want people seeing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's true, because I feel like uh, like my Spotify account is is somehow linked to my Facebook. So people can see it has like <laughs> it's called something like a friend, uh, friend activity. Like right now I'm opening it up and I see that our friend who I won't name is listening to I Want It That Way by Backstreet Boys <laughs> as, we, as we speak. You should um, message that friend and make fun of them right away. I, I, I'm, I'm, I might just. Um, <laughs> um, they might not know about the, uh, what do you call it? What do you call it? A, secret, a secret session? Yeah, I mean, I think people are just too lazy to turn it on. It is a bit of a pain. You got to like go into your settings and stuff, but... Yeah, you can follow people on there. It's not really a platform where a lot of people are following and like checking what other people are doing. You know, you more like you're on the go, you're listening to a playlist. 
But I certainly, yeah, wouldn't want people like deep diving into what exactly I'm listening to at what time of day. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it is pretty crazy to think about how, how, uh, how an algorithm could sort of like, um, I mean, it's impressive and yet scary at the same time, like all of these big data things, how, mm -hmm. how they can sort of like, I mean, every now and then the Discovery Weekly takes a, you know, a wildly wrong uh, turn, <laughs> but like a lot of the time it's like, wow, yeah, this is totally what I feel like listening to. Although I have to say that um, I, I was kind of a late adopter of Spotify and it's taken them quite a while to really finesse my taste because for the longest time one of the only playlists i had was the one for your wedding oh <laughs> so, so they were kind of going off your taste okay mine for a while but now I've, i think that's been kind of like winnowed down my sincere apologies well no you know there was nothing bad <laughs> probably bootylicious was on there i mean come on but i, I, w I wouldn't be i wouldn't complain about that <laughs> um so you talked about some soundtracks uh, that scared you as a kid. Um, are there any soundtracks that, that you really loved or that you love uh, to this day? Yeah, I mean, it seems a bit cliche, but I got to say that the Amelie soundtrack was was probably, I think, one of the best film soundtracks ever. I um, remember the soundtrack. Yen Tiersen, uh, just instrumental piano. Um, okay. Yeah, and I mean, if you listen to, actually, I, I thought that it was a piece from the Amelie soundtrack that was used on the Nomadland trailer, but it turns out it was Lido Vico Anaudi. So I don't know who ripped off who, but quite similar. Um, yeah, I think Amelie was, was probably one of the greatest film soundtracks ever. Um, I really loved the Isle of Dogs soundtrack. Um, one, of the, one of the great music supervisors out there is this guy, Randall Poster. And he's sure. done all of Wes Anderson's films. And I actually watched Rushmore again recently. And I mean, the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack is one of my favorites, but I thought like Isle of Dogs, the Japanese drumming in that was just so creative and cool. And everything Colin Stetson has been doing, I'm, I'm just, yeah. I have it on re like repeat all the time. I love it. Was it uh, Hereditary that he did the, the soundtrack for yeah hereditary really, it's so good terrifying <laughs> terrifying soundtrack yeah i mean he's he's so talented and he he's done a few scores recently and i love all of his stuff and um actually another like big favorite of mine is um there's a swedish director ruben ostland and he, um he did the films force majeure and the square oh, okay. mm -hmm. the square i don't know if you saw that but I love I the soundtracks. It, but I, I really want to see it. Yeah, like the it's there's there's kind of like classical mixed with like justice. Um, the Force Majeure film has like an accordion version of Vivaldi Four Seasons mixed with like some crazy like Rotterdam techno by this guy DJ Terror, and like it these uh, these are some of my favorite soundtracks of recent times, for sure. Also, Two Days in Paris is a huge fave. Um, I don't know if you know that film. It's one of my favorite movies. It was... Uh, uh, it rings a bell, but I... Oh, is it the Julie... Uh, Julie Delpy, yeah. Yeah, 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 I've seen that. I like that movie. It's really good, yeah. And I mean, the the licensed tracks in the soundtrack are... They're fine, they're, they're good, but it's actually her original music, which is barely even credited, that I love so much. She just wrote... I didn't wrote, know that she did the music. Yeah, she wrote these cool. kind of like rinky dinky like synth lines to kind of underscore the comedic moments where like her boyfriend's getting really jealous. And I honestly, I just think it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, that's cool. I, uh, have you seen a movie called White God? No. It's a Hungarian movie uh, that has an almost all dog uh, cast it's like a movie about a dog Whoa. Um, it, it's very it's a very cool movie and the soundtrack is really cool because it's like it mixes i just thought of it when you were talking about uh some of the other soundtracks you like because it's a full orchestral soundtrack but it also has like synths in it mm -hmm. but it's not in a corny way at all it, it totally works like you know I feel like I would sort of raise my eyebrow if someone said like, oh yeah, it combines like electro synth pads with orchestral music. 
Like I, w- I think that the danger of that being corny is like pretty high, but this soundtrack is uh, really cool. It really works. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of people kind of fusing old classical with electronic elements, which was, you know, um, I don't know if you've been watching Succession at all. Yeah, yeah, I love Succession. Like, a great show and an amazing theme song. And um, the composer, Nicholas Brutel, said he was fusing like 1700s classical music or something with, with hip hop for the score. And yeah. I think, yeah, a lot of people are kind of playing in that space. And there's kind of a resurgence of this kind of 80s synth sound in a lot of stuff, too. Like, I don't know if you saw Uncut Gems. Yep. But that soundtrack was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty hotly debated. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I thought it it was kind of amazing. I mean, that guy's Daniel Lopatin. Is that it? Yeah, I, I don't know how you say it, Lopatin. Yeah, no, I neither do I. He did the soundtrack for Uncut Gems and for uh, Good Time, the previous Safdie Brothers movie, maybe some other things too. But what was the debate about it? Well, I mean, a lot of people said it was the most annoying soundtrack ever made, really? the worst soundtrack ever made. It, I mean, for one, it was really, really loud in the mix. It's really mm-hmm. jarring, so you can practically not even hear the dialogue over the music and i i kind of love how like i just i love how badass it is it's like you know what we're just we're gonna go crazy with this soundtrack so i i think it was successful in terms of like risk taking but i don't know if it's if it was the most successful choice that they could have made for the music for the film you know, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously you work in the business, so you think about these things. But I mean, I, uh, and I, you know, I, I too have a background in film and in music, but I never, I, I just thought the music was cool. And uh, in both the films, just added to this crazy sense of dread that just begins at the start and never lets up the entire time. And I think it was just kind of part of the whole package. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think it it did a really good job of making the viewer feel very, very uncomfortable and stressed for the entire duration of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it lacked a bit of subtlety in terms of any beats, and and maybe that was a, that was a conscious choice. I'm sure it was. I mean, the film is not subtle at all, <laughs> um, and yet, you know, I mean, I also I thought it was amazing, even though like I was you know probably literally like in a ball of stress for the entire 90 minutes or whatever it was yeah Yeah. and there's the same with their other movie good time anyway um how did we get on that we were talking about like contemporary soundtracks and uh, yeah yeah just just recent soundtracks that were good i guess and also um 80 synth we were you were talking about synth synth sounds Uh uh-huh yeah well there's so much to 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 revisit i guess like you know you you associate 80s synth soundtracks with terror so that's like, <laughs> yeah i made that connection you know <laughs> when yeah. i started thinking about some of the first soundtracks that i ever experienced and they were all kind of in in and around 1985 roughly and there was a lot of that sort of very metallic and tinny thin synth kind of sound that yeah, still yeah, don't true. like. I love a I love a murk a very murky, very murky and like reverby kind of sound. It's so funny how and I mean when you work in music you you're able to pinpoint those things so much more specifically. Like it's it's funny how these uh, these these little technicalities can have such an emotional uh, effect. Um, talking about that, I mean, do you feel like how could I put this? Um, do you feel like working in in publishing, being uh, associated with licensing and soundtracks, like, do you have, um, does that give you any cynicism about the kind of like manipulative side of how music can affect people? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I feel pretty positive about music <laughs> and its potential to affect people um you know in all different ways so i don't feel cynical i think sometimes you can get like 
some listening fatigue, you know, um, like I think I mentioned earlier that I've been sort of funneling down and, and trying to refine and work with less and less music and less and less artists, you know, like the ones that I really admire the most. Um, and it can be tiring when you have to listen to music all day for work. So a lot of times um, in the evenings, I don't listen to anything or I find myself listening to a lot of um, nature sounds. So <laughs> I have a, I have like a an 11 hour long YouTube clip of like Hawaiian ocean waves. Okay. And I listen to that a lot. And I think what that is, is like you, you need to give your ears a little bit of a rest, right? You want to be enjoying it. So um, I don't feel cynical about music, but I, I do say you could get a little burned out on listening because there's a lot of music out there and, I, you know, not all of it is good and not all of it is going to be your taste either. Um, so I think, you know, you need to give yourself like breaks so that you can really appreciate those listening experiences. And for me, for it's sure. it's about like, yeah, I love getting getting like a Spotify playlist on and going for a long walk and just walking and listening to music or I love sitting in the evening when I'm in the mood to listen to music, like on a Friday or on the weekend and like really listening to music and not doing anything else. That's great. I mean, I, I'm so happy to hear you say that in a way because some, some people I know who are veterans in the music biz are pretty like burnt out on that kind of enjoyment. Um, but I guess what I was more getting at is like do you have an insight into or do you feel like you have insight into the way music affects people's psychology in terms of placing music in movies or ads or whatever it might be well i mean there's a couple of different angles to that so like you know in a literal sense i worked on a project a couple of years ago where some composers that I work with actually teamed up with some neuroscientists okay. and we did an experiment where we we actually tested the brainwave frequencies of people listening to the music so you can get really literal about this stuff and I know that some of the creepy stuff that Spotify is doing involves that type of intelligence and what people's moods are but for me like the, you know the mark of someone who is good at music licensing or music supervision who like works in soundtracks is it's it, it's more thinking about the story of a song or the story of a piece of music and like when you feel when you feel something straight away when you put a piece of music on then i think like a great piece of music will conjure up a very strong emotional feeling or a very strong image in your mind and a story right away and if, if a piece of music doesn't do that for me, then I could kind of just set it aside from a professional context. You know, I'll be like, mm -hmm. that's, that's not a piece of music that really belongs in the soundtrack realm. It right. needs to immediately affect, you know, all of your senses where like, if you close your eyes, you can, you can imagine driving down, you know, like, I mean, you can imagine driving down like that, that sunset strip or whatever in that car, you can feel the wind, you can, you know, like you, you need to be able to very clearly feel and picture things. And so I think, you know, selfishly, I would probably assume that if a piece of music like affects me, it's probably going to affect other people. Right. And that you, you kind of just go from there, I guess, from your own experience of mm -hmm. listening. And good music supervisors are really good at doing that. You know, they know how a piece of music might sort of team up you know a lot of times like great music placements will team up with the picture in an ironic way where that creates humor or yeah, you know sure. it it doesn't it doesn't quite match and that in itself is what creates the response like we were just talking about with uncut gems like the way the music sort of very explicitly and purposefully makes you feel uncomfortable so that's a choice and right. yeah yeah when you sit down you know you're as a film director, you're really dependent upon a lot of times your music supervisor to kind of get it in terms of like, how, how should this, how should this story feel and how do we make that happen with the songs that we choose? Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to ask you one other thing because you, um, you, you mentioned this in, in your notes that, uh, that you also have a soft spot for Coldplay. I wondered why you wanted, to, <laughs> you wanted to bring that up. Maybe I don't want to bring that up. Yeah, oh, yeah well, it's your uh, choice. <laughs> you can decide what stays and goes. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, 
Well, I mean, I think, think talking about, you know, emotionally kind of <laughs> on the nose, like, I don't know, maybe it's unfair to say manipulative, but like, it's pretty like, let's say it's successful in hitting an emotional button. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, maybe the music was getting a bit samey, samey by the time they decided to throw in the towel, mm-hmm. um, which was a good decision. But, you know, like back in the time of sort of like parachutes, I think, you know, those those were just some really great pop songs, like the kind of pop songs you haven't really heard in a long time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there, was a, there, was a, there was a simplicity to them in the melody, and I mean, come on, Chris Martin, right? So, yeah, I sort of, sort of liked Coldplay, and then I ended up getting a gig where I was doing some, like, promo for them, and um, this was around the same time, like, when I was doing some freelance work, when I started, <laughs> started working for Ninja Tune. Mm-hmm. And I remember Jeff from Ninja Tune sort of indicating that, you know, if I liked Coldplay, he wasn't going to be able to hire me type of thing. Okay. Um, and um, I was like, yeah, but, and it became a bit of a running joke. So I had all these Coldplay flyers from my work. So I would like sneak them everywhere and just like leave, <laughs> leave posters and flyers of, of Chris Martin all around Jeff's desk and stuff um, just to bug him. But I mean, I saw... Coldplay perform at Oshiaga. I worked for the festival for in its first couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I saw Coldplay perform. And I mean, you know, those big moments when when they have butterflies, paper butterflies shooting out of cannons over the audience and Chris Martin's voice is just like soaring. You're like, oh, it's really hard not to cry right now. I mean... <laughs> I think I think for me, you know, a, a French band that kind of successfully did the same thing exactly was Malajube. Um, mm. They, you know, they, I don't know if you remember, but they had this great song, Etienne Daou, and they would basically blast like, you know, balloons or like, they would blast stuff out into the audience as they were sort of performing this big sort of sweeping epic sort of finale to their set. And it, it was like French Coldplay. Right. I guess the takeaway is that confetti cannons are like a surefire <laughs> way to make your, your epic musical moment. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, more confetti would be the the the, the summary of all of my recommendations. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, well, um, so uh, so what what's what's your favorite thing you're listening to right now? Oh, good one. Um, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of Nicholas Jar okay. and Nick Hakim, although I do also sometimes listen to artists whose names aren't Nick. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think um, the other artist I got really into over the past while is Frankie Reyes. He's um, released an album called uh, Originalitos. Mm-hmm. Um on stone's throw okay and it's just this kind of like murky um puerto rican like chill out music mm-hmm. that sounds like it's coming from a speaker that's like underwater in another room oh yeah yeah i love that kind I, of sound I really love it and also some ski mask like quite a bit of drum and bass uh <laughs> i don't know just i guess to just get the blood going while you know we're we're quite sedentary at the moment yeah yeah. Awesome. Well, Julie, thanks for your time. And uh, it's, uh, as I said, it's, it's good to have you, uh, people like you and you in particular in this uh, crazy music business. Well, thank you. It's good to, to know people like you. And um, I, I do rem- still remember that that first time you came to play in Kitchener with your special jumpsuit and your friend that was wearing like a sheep's mask or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm trying to remember whether that was we, we played at, at a at a campus bar, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a drum circle was the opening act. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I saw a woman carrying a djembe the other day and I thought a djembe in the snow it just it doesn't make sense. <laughs> thank you Julie and thank you very much for listening. That's our show for the week. Julie Blake is on various social media, but only in mysterious pseudonymous forms. So I'll let you find your way to her or her to you. 
You can find me, Malcolm Fraser, on all the appropriate social media. If you enjoy the show, you can uh, subscribe, you can give us a rating, and most importantly, you can spread the word. Tell a friend. Get the word out about this show. Thank you very much. See you next time.